our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. On Sunday mornings, we're studying 2 Peter together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we really like everyone to have a Bible and to not only hear the Word of God, but follow along with your own eyes. And there are men coming up the aisles right now. If you just wave to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands and you'll be able to hear the Word of God, but follow along as well in reading. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Apostle Peter writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory which such a, when such a voice came to him, that is to Jesus, from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. I like this better than the old King James. We have a more sure word of prophecy. But the new King James communicates essentially the same. For we have the prophetic word confirmed or just as easily we have the confirmed prophetic word, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or origin or source, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it's a living word that we're reading today. Your whole book is because of the activity of your Holy Spirit behind it. And Lord, we just submit ourselves to you, to the voice of your Holy Spirit this morning. We're glad we never have to turn to this book independent of the author. You're the teacher, and so we pray that you would teach us this morning from this passage. Every reason that it is in your book, Lord, these verses, we want those things to be accomplished in our lives. And so we ask for that witness of your Holy Spirit to the teaching today that we would hear your voice through this passage, Lord, your clear voice, and that that voice would impact our relationship with you. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Peter wrote his first and second letters to Christians who were paying a very, very high price for simply being Christians, for being faithful in their relationship with the Lord Jesus. And many of them were paying the ultimate price for being faithful to the Lord. Many of them were being martyred for their faith during this great persecution against Christians that was occurring uh, in the, with the backing of the Roman government un, under an emperor by the name of Nero. And this persecution wasn't just, you know, affecting people uh, far from Rome or affecting people that were a little more anonymous than, say, the apostles. This persecution 
for being a Christian is now approaching Peter at at a great, great speed. He is not only experiencing persecution himself for his faithfulness to God's calling on his life, but we know and he knows that death is fast approaching as well, simply for being an apostle and for being a Christian at that time. Well, when you are in the middle of these kind of situations where the persecution is great, where you know that death may come your way at any time, in times like those, they can really put a person's faith to the test. And they can, those kind of seasons can cause us to consider questions like, do I really believe what I say I believe? Is what I believe really true? Am I convinced of it? Am I willing to lay my life down for this? Am I that sure of what I believe concerning Jesus and what I believe concerning this Christian life? And times like that are never a bad time uh, for a Christian because it causes us to search our faith. And because our faith is based in the truth, it will always result in a deepening of our faith. When you, the truth is never afraid of being searched. Uh, it's, it is never afraid of examination or scrutiny. And so it's a time like this where Peter knows that the readers of this letter, they are examining their faith in a way that perhaps they had never been forced to before. And if, if our faith is in something and it can't withstand this kind of an examination by all that life can throw at us, then it's not the truth and we just throw it overboard and we say good riddance to it and the sooner the better. Now, in these verses of Second Peter, Peter does two massively huge things that he's communicating here. The first thing that he's communicating is he is revealing to us the deep, unshakable foundation for his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And then having given us that revelation, the second thing he does is he calls upon each and every one of us in this room and in the whole wide world to make that foundation our foundation for our faith in Jesus as well. Now, in verses 16 through 18, Peter declared himself to be an eyewitness of the life and the glory of Jesus. For three and a half years, he was with Jesus in his public ministry. Everything Jesus said, he heard. Everything that Jesus did, he witnessed. He saw all of the miracles. He heard all of the teaching. He saw when people came up, crowds came up to Jesus, and when Jesus was tired, he watched Jesus and noticed what he did do and what he didn't do, what he did say to people, what he didn't say uh, to people. And so he was a witness of Jesus' life, not only all of his life, but then his death and his burial and his resurrection. He tells us further in these verses that he was present as an eyewitness and an ear witness on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
He saw with his own eyes Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration transfigured into his eternal glory. And on that same mountain, involved with that same event, he heard the voice of God the Father declare, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. He heard those words with his own ears. And that event is recorded in each of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because God wants us to be familiar, no matter what Gospel we're reading, of the synoptic Gospels to to be familiar with the particular event. And we're told in Mark's Gospel, in that recording of it, that Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten. And and then the account talks about (laughs) Peter's uh, faux pas, which we'll leave out of it. And a cloud then came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. Now here's what I would expect, and I think most of us would expect Peter or anyone else who had that experience as a part of their Christian history uh, to, to, uh, uh, to think. And, and if that was a part, and, and I would expect of Peter here, again, or anyone else that had such an experience, to then declare that experience, why do you believe in Jesus? Why is your faith in Jesus unshakable? Why do you know him to be the Savior of the world? Why do you know him to be the promised Messiah? Why can nobody move you from that conviction, Peter? And we would expect Peter to say, Ah, let me tell you about the day I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I saw him in all of his eternal glory with James and John. And I heard the voice of the Father bear witness to the fact that this was His Son and that I was to listen to whatever it is that He said. And it is that experience that I had on the Mount of Transfiguration that is the single great anchor to my faith, no matter what the world throws at me and all of its darkness. Well, that's what I would expect to hear someone like, like Peter say with that kind of an ex, uh, of an experience and him to declare this is why my faith is unshakable and this is why I am willing to die for this truth but he doesn't do that that's what I would expect but he doesn't do that at all instead he proceeds to give us a reason for faith in Jesus as the savior of the world that is an even greater foundation for faith than even seeing and hearing. A foundation for our faith in Jesus that's even surer than any personal experience that we might have with Him. I think that someone might rightfully ask, what could be a greater foundation for faith than seeing? What could be a greater foundation for faith than hearing? After all, isn't seeing believing isn't seeing the ultimate evidence for something isn't it true that when we see something that at that moment faith ceases to be faith and now becomes an indisputable fact what could be a more sure foundation for our faith than seeing and hearing and peter gives us the answer in verse 19 and his answer is 
the more sure word of prophecy. And essentially, he declares that as wonderful as all of these things were, being an eyewitness to the life and miracles and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, being an ear witness of Jesus' teaching and and the very presence of uh, witness of God's voice declaring his pleasure with Jesus, Peter's faith was not based supremely on those things, but supremely upon the witness or the testimony of the Old Testament Scriptures to Jesus as the Christ, as the Anointed One from God. There is something better than seeing is believing or hearing is believing, and that is a faith that is based upon the prophetic Old Testament Scriptures. Again, I like it best in the Old King James. We have, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now, in the Old Testament Scriptures, beginning immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, God began to speak a series of prophecies concerning a Savior that He would send into the world to save Adam and Eve and to save all of us from the indescribably horrible consequences of that sin in that ancient garden. He began immediately in that environment to speak and to prophesy of the Savior that He would send into the world. For instance, in terms of his description in the Old Testament of this Savior that he would send into the world, God had declared that this Savior would be born into the world. God said, when I send the Savior into the world, he's not going to come on a spaceship. He's not going to come down by fire at some temple or some tabernacle. It's not going to be anything quite that spectacular He's going to come into the world as a baby. He's going to be born. And not only is he going to be born, but he is going to be born of a virgin. And again, at the very scene of the fall in the Garden of Eden, God declared to the serpent, to the devil, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And then speaking of her seed, he, that is the Messiah, shall crush your head or your authority, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But wait a second. A woman does not bring seed to the reproductive process. Men bring the seed. Women bring the egg. And by ascribing seed to the woman, he is speaking of a virgin birth, that this will be a conception that will occur independent of a man will be a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Through the prophet Isaiah, 740 years before Jesus was born, God declared, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Through the prophet Micah, God declared that when the Messiah came, he would be born in the city of Ceres. Now, he didn't say that, did he? That would be a different series than the series we know. It would be full of shrines. No, God declared that when the Messiah came, he would be born in the city of Bethlehem just as Jesus was. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, out of you shall come forth to me 
the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. That prophecy was given 750 years before Jesus was born. God further declared that when the Messiah came into the world that he would be divine, that is, that he would be God in human flesh. Again, Isaiah, For unto us a child is born, again speaking of his birth. Unto us a son is given, he'll be the son of God. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And so Jesus was, and so Jesus is. God further declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he would be a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And further, that he would be a descendant of the tribe of Judah, of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so we find in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, God prophesied that the scepter, this is something that a ruler holds, shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. 1,700 years before Jesus was born and so Jesus was. God declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he'd be a descendant of David, the great prophet king of the nation of Israel. And so Jesus was. God declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he'd be rejected and he would die at the hands of the very ones that he had been sent into the world to save. Again, Isaiah speaks of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed." We recognize immediately the person and the scene that the Holy Spirit was speaking of through the prophet Isaiah. But, and you almost have to stop and realize that this description was not given to us post Jesus' crucifixion, but 740 years before his crucifixion. Isaiah went on to say, and he, speaking of the Messiah, was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so it was true of Jesus. He was rejected, and he died at the hands of the very people that he had come to save. John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. 
God declared that the Messiah would be betrayed at the time of his death by a close friend, just as Judas did, and that the betrayer would betray Jesus, the, betray, the Messiah, for 30 pieces of silver, which is the exact sum that the religious leaders paid Judas for that betrayal. The, the prophets, God prophesied that uh, Messiah would be falsely accused and silent before his accusers, Isaiah again. He prophesied that the Messiah would be beaten and spat upon. This was unthinkable to the Jewish mind, that the Messiah would be born into the world and that he could ever be treated in that way by Gentiles was unthinkable. To be thought that he would receive that treatment from Jews, they couldn't comprehend it. They didn't know what to do with the prophecies. Because as they read the Scriptures, the prophetic Scriptures, they would look at these passages that would speak of the suffering Savior. And then they would read these passages that spoke of the Messiah as a coming king. And they did not know. They were so, such two entirely different pictures. They didn't know how to reconcile them. They did not know what to do with them. They didn't know the, how they could be united by one life as they are united in the life of Christ as the suffering Savior in His first coming, as the conquering King in His second coming. And so they did what probably most of us would do in this room. And that is we like the more positive of the two messages. And so they took these passages that were unthinkable to them in terms of the treatment of the Messiah and they simply ignored them. And they emphasized the passages that had to do with his victory and his might and his coming kingdom and these kind of things. And yet God had said, when he comes, this whole picture is about him. You don't subdivide and move and around and all. This is all going to happen to him, just as it did with Jesus. God said that his death would involve the piercing of his hands and his feet, that is crucifixion. David prophesied of that a thousand years before Jesus was born. God declared that the soldiers would gamble for his clothing while he hung on that cross, again Psalm 22, that the Messiah would be crucified with transgressors or thieves, just as Jesus was, that his side would be pierced as a result of all of these things, just as his side was pierced in order to confirm his death. But the Old Testament scriptures also declared that the Messiah would not stay in that dead condition long enough for his body to corrupt, that he would rise from the dead. Psalm 16:10, David wrote and he said, For you, speaking to the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol. And then as it relates to the Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to see corruption. And we could go on and on and on this morning because it's estimated that Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies in his first coming alone. And the remainder of uh, uh, remaining prophecies he will fulfill in his second coming. And God gave this amazing prophetic description of the Savior that he would send into the world so that when this man was introduced into human history, 
that no one could miss him when he came. The description is that thorough. It is that complete. And in fact, God made his prophetic description so detailed and so precise as to make it impossible for any honest person to miss him when he came. We know that the only person in human history that matches that prophetic portrait is our Lord Jesus. Imagine if you would, and I think additionally it's interesting to know there's so many prophecies we could talk about, but we don't have the time. Daniel gave a prophecy concerning the coming of Messiah, the prince that is dated from a particular date that happened in Jewish history. And it was the very day that Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, uh, beginning the week before his death upon the cross. That is a prophecy that is time-sensitive. In other words, no one can fulfill it today. No one can come on the scene today and declare themselves to be the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, on the basis of the Scriptures, because no one can fulfill that prophecy in Daniel. It was either fulfilled by Jesus in 32 A.D., or, it, or it, it'll never be fulfilled. But it was fulfilled by Jesus. In other words, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, no one is the Messiah. In history, it is impossible for anyone to show up on the scene and say, I am today, I am the promised Messiah and match the prophetic description. It's too too late. Now imagine, if you would, a great painter's canvas behind me. And if you were to give a master painter over 300 brushes of the stroke upon a canvas, some strokes broad, other strokes fine. It wouldn't be long after five strokes, ten strokes, 25 strokes, 50 strokes, 100 strokes. It wouldn't be long before until a recognizable and an even unmistakable face emerged. And that's what God has done through prophecy the broad strokes. He'll be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'll be of the tribe of Judah. He will be a descendant of David. And then you add to that the finest of strokes. He will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He'll be crucified, and not only crucified, but crucified between thieves. That he will then be resurrected from the dead. And you give that master painter... 300 strokes on that canvas and ultimately only one life in human history is going to match that prophetic portrait. Only one life will be recognizable on that canvas. And why in the world would God provide this prophetic portrait in order to provide us as Christians and to provide everyone in this world with a reasonable faith? Not a blind faith. In Jesus is the promised Messiah, but a faith based upon the surest thing in this world, based upon the unchanging, eternal Word of God. It is interesting uh, to realize that Jesus didn't just show up out of nowhere 
and then just expect everyone to know that he was the Messiah or to accept him as the Messiah. And, and he, just simply because he would show up on the scene and declare himself to be the Messiah. He was constantly calling people to trust in him on the basis of the prophetic scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. To the Jewish religious leaders of his day, Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quoted from an Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 118, and he was saying to them, Your rejection of me is a witness to the fact that I am the Messiah because the psalmist declared that you would do this very thing that you're doing. To the religious leaders of his day who rejected him because they did not want to accept his claim of being divine, of being the Son of God and God the Son. They only wanted to believe in a Messiah that would be human. And they didn't want to believe in a divine Messiah. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 41, Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? That is merely David's son. He's just merely going to be a man and not divine. Jesus asked them. Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David therefore calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord. How then is he his son or merely his son? In other words, you should have expected the Messiah to come on the scene and to declare himself to be a greater king than King David. And David was the greatest king that the nation of Israel ever had. In other words, the Messiah would come as a king who would be more than a man. And he quoted that Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 110. When Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulled out a sword and he began to endeavor to protect God. (laughs) I hope you don't believe that God needs our protection. I think he protects us. It would be scary if we had to protect him. Listen, Damien, I need a bodyguard. Really, things are way worse than I thought. (laughs) No, he doesn't. But Peter was like us. You know, sometimes we think we've got to defend God. So while he's being arrested by that crowd led by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane on the morning of his crucifixion, Peter pulls out a sword and he begins to hack off ears and who knows what else in in, in protecting Jesus from the injustice of the scene. And Peter, Jesus quieted Peter and all of the disciples. How? By reminding them of the prophetic scriptures. Matthew chapter 26, verse 49. And Judas came to Jesus, and he said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And they laid hands on Jesus, and they took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, and he drew his sword, and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place. For all who will take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled 
that it must happen thus. And in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, searching, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And after his resurrection, speaking to the two men who were on their way to a city called Emmaus, they had believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but now that Jesus has been crucified and buried and they don't know anything of his resurrection yet, the proof of it, and so they're having doubts about Jesus as the Messiah because he's not meeting their particular expectations related to that. And Jesus, kind of anonymously, they didn't recognize him. He joined himself to them on the journey, and he began to enter into the conversation with them. And what does Jesus do? He reminds them of the Old Testament prophecies. Luke 24, verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that on the evening of that resurrection, he came to the disciples as they were hiding themselves in fear behind a locked door in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. And what did he do when he was in their midst? He reminded them of the prophetic scriptures. Luke chapter 24, So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he, that is Jesus, took it and he ate in their presence. And then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. He intentionally and deliberately founded their faith upon his fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures for their faith in him. The Apostle Peter did the same thing. I mean, the Apostle Paul did the same thing in his writings. He would call on people to put their faith in Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior of the world, on the basis of those Old Testament scriptures. He wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was raised, buried, and that he rose again the third day according to to the scriptures. We're reminded continually in the book of Acts when Peter when Paul would make his way on his various missionary journeys, come into a city and enter into a synagogue to begin to preach Christ as the Messiah. We're told that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. 
He didn't want them to believe in Jesus as the Messiah just because he believed in Jesus as the Messiah. He wanted them to have a prophetic Old Testament scriptural foundation for their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. You notice in verse 19 that Peter calls on each of us to make that more sure word of prophecy the foundation for our faith as well. He said, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus came into this world in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic scriptures in order to not only provide us with a reason and a reasonable faith in him, but he also has provided us this him as the Messiah and the evidence of it, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures in order to provide us with a protection for our faith. This world we live in is a dark place. It's hostile to Christianity. And it's becoming more and more hostile. You look at academic settings. You look at television. You look at movies. You look at media. You look at publications. You look at educational settings. All of these things that are going on and how antagonistic the world is toward Christ and toward his people all over the whole big wide world. This is a spiritually a very, very dark place to live. And then you have the devil who will come and attack us for our faith. And he never plays fair. He waits until some great trial has occurred in our marriage or related to our children or something related to our health or some kind of trial or loss of job or shift or change or whatever it might be. And then in the darkness of the moment where we're already dealing with so much and processing so much, he then comes in and he begins to whisper, Hath God really said? And he begins to try to cast his doubts within our minds related to our faith in Christ and our trust in Christ. The testimony, Peter says, and he knew all about these things, he said the testimony of the... Uh, at times like that, we do well to remember the sure word of prophecy because the testimony of the Scriptures is like a light that shines in a dark place. This world is a dark place for our faith. And so when we're persecuted for our faith, when we're forced to stand alone in our school or in our family or in our workplace, the whole wide world, because we remain faithful to the Lord. Or again, when the devil comes along and tries to cast doubt upon our faith in the Lord, are you sure? We respond, my faith in Jesus is not based supremely upon some religious experience I've had. Though I'm thankful for every religious experience I've had. I'm thankful for the miracle of my conversion. That's real to me. That's a real miracle that happened in my life. I'm thankful for the miracle that God has made of my life. It may be a small miracle to other people, but I know the person that stands before you today is a miracle. 
compared to the person that would otherwise stand before you apart from Christ. I'm thankful, though, for all of that history with God, all of that experience with God, all of those miracles of God. But as thankful as I am for all of those things, my faith in Jesus is not based upon those things, but based upon the sure, unchanging, prophetic scriptures. And these fulfilled prophecies remind us that our faith is not misplaced. The testimony of the prophetic scriptures is to be like a light shining in our hearts until the day of the rapture and Jesus comes back and he takes us out of the darkness of this world. In verses 20 and 21, Peter is essentially saying the same thing two different ways. Again, in verse 20, he said, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. And again, that Greek word could just as easily be translated origin or source. And, and he says the same thing in verse 21, which is the context of it. And, and, he's, and what he's making clear is that the origin of these prophetic Scriptures was not in man, but in God, who spoke to man through the Holy Spirit. Only God. I don't care how elevated a person's view is of mankind. Only God could have painted that prophetic portrait. No human being or series of human beings could be capable of it. One day you and I are going to reach a place. We can't cure ourselves of the common cold. We're going to reach a place in life where we're going to stand for a full 90 seconds in front of our sock drawer wondering if I got two blacks or two navy blues or one black and one navy blue and still get it wrong and go to the wedding and have two different colored socks. We're not that impressive. Only God could have done what He did. Only He could be the author of such a portrait I think about Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21. There's a time in which the children of Israel are, they're just bailing on God. So many, not all of them, but so many of them just backsliding. They have this tremendous godly heritage, and they're just worshiping all the junk of the world, all the false idols and all the gods and all the junk that comes with it. And they've got them statues of gold and they've got statues of silver and statues of wood and they've got statues carved out of stone. And God's watching this whole thing. I mean, here he is. He's the fountain of living water and he's been replaced by broken cisterns that can hold no water. And and it's a front enough to God that somebody would reject him for anything, but to reject him for these things that can't speak, this is your God, and you put him on the mantle and he can't get off the mantle? Even in Toy Story, they could get off the mantle. (laughs) you got to carry that God everywhere it's got to be carried, and that God can't speak, and he's trying to get them to think about the folly of what they're worshiping and how unqualified these idols are to be called a God. She says, all right, I'll put it, let's put your gods to a little God test. 
And he declared, he said, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. And he speaks concerning these idols to the children of Israel who are following. He said, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them tell us something of the future before it happens. Let them show us the former things, the beginning of human history. Why are we here? How did we get here? Why are we the way that we are? Let them show us the former things, what they were, that we may then consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us the things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. In other words, God is saying a bare minimum demand that any of us should place on the master passion of our life or of our God is that that God can tell us about the former things, how we got here, why we're here, what's the meaning of life, why are we the way that we are, why are we sinners, why aren't we perfect, why is the world in the condition that it's in. And I would contend that there is no greater explanation for the world that you and I live in every single day than the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, the creation of man and the fall of man in that ancient garden. And then he said, concerning any God that you're going to follow, let him be able to declare with 100% accuracy prophetically the things that will come to pass so that when they do come to pass, we might acknowledge that they're gods. And he gave the challenge. And it's as great a challenge and as applicable a challenge today as ever it was 3,000 years ago. And then God, in what was just sanctified scorn at this point, then spoke to these false gods and he lowered the standard all the way down. And he said, yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and see it together. Put that God of stone right there and I'm not even going to ask it to talk. I'm not going to ask it to tell us how we got here, these great questions in life. I'm not going to ask it to tell us the future. All I want it to do is to move on its own like a little monkey. And, of course, the idols couldn't do that, that we may be dismayed and see it together. And then God declared of these idols, he said, Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. Our faith in Jesus as the Messiah, Peter said, is not based upon cunningly devised fables, but upon the surest foundation of anything that exists in this whole wide world and creation. And that is upon the prophetic scriptures, the very, very word of God. If you're new to the Bible this morning, it's very important that you understand this prophetic element associated with Jesus' life, these prophecies that God gave so that you would recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah when he came. If I knew nothing of the Bible and someone were to come up to me and say, listen, you need to put your faith in Jesus 
as the Son of God and as the Savior of the world for the forgiveness of your sins, I would immediately think, yeah, right, and precisely why should I do that concerning him over any other person in human history? And the answer to that question is, is because unlike every other person in human history, he is the exact representation and fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic scriptures. And from the context of heaven, the perspective of heaven, in light of the prophetic testimony to Christ, it is not only not blind faith to believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world, what becomes blind ultimately is unbelief in the light of the amazing testimony that he has given in his scriptures. And I think that any honest person sitting in a room like this that sees what God has provided for you personally so that in a room like this, on a day like this, your jaw would drop spiritually inside of your heart and go, I never knew that. And of course, the only person that God is describing is Jesus in human history. And God, and the realization that God loves me so much that He wanted me to be able to identify Him in human history unmistakably so that I wouldn't be fooled by all of the charlatans and all of the other voices and all of the nonsense and all of the gurus and all of the voices for God and the darkness of this world today, but to be able to look and say, that can only be said of one person in human history. And that's the real deal as testified to by the Holy Spirit. And to know that when you put your faith in Jesus this morning, that you will not be disappointed You are not being deceived. You are not following cunningly devised fables. But you are basing this life and your eternity upon the surest thing that exists in this world. And that is the very word of God. There are going to be the pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this teaching. And we're going to pray in a moment. Close in a worship song. God loves you and he wants to save you and forgive you of your sin Look at the unbelievable effort that he has gone to for you to be able to recognize your Savior. I say, I say that to you because I cannot believe that he did that for me so that I wouldn't be fooled and deceived. Look what he's done for us. And then to put your faith in Christ here this morning. And God will come into your life when you do by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself will lead you by his Holy Spirit into the greatest life a person can live in this world to say nothing of the world to come. And it's all there for the asking. And it's all there for the receiving. God has literally done everything right up to touching our will in order for us to be saved. He can lay all of these things out, but only you can decide what you will do with them. He will never force a man, woman, or child 
into a relationship with him, though he longs for it more than can be expressed. Only the cross expresses it. Take advantage of the opportunity this morning to enter into that relationship. Let's stand together and we'll pray. We're so humbled by your love, Father, that you would even think or bother to provide a Savior for us is amazing. We don't know why except that you love and you love us, and we're so grateful for that. But then on top of all of that, to go through all that you have done to point every conceivable sign at Jesus so that we would not miss him in the course of our pilgrimage as the Savior that we need to put our trust in for the forgiveness of our sins. You have thought of everything. You have done way above and beyond, Lord, in order to bring us into that relationship with you. And we're humbled by that and we're grateful for it. Those of us who know you, Lord, and love you here this morning, Thank you so much for the work of your Holy Spirit and bringing us to you through your Son. And I pray and we pray for one another that this more sure word of prophecy would be the great anchor of our faith in the darkness of human history that you have called us to live for you in. And Lord, we pray for each man and woman that stands before you today that doesn't know you yet that you would take all of this amazing thing that you have provided for them and just cause it to be a voice to their heart that they're home and they found the truth and this is what you're calling them into and then give them the grace to obey it this morning and enter the life that you have for them. We pray that nothing that would oppose them taking that step this morning would be successful in their lives. May the work of your Holy Spirit in drawing them to you be greater than all resistance, whatever its form. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen.